Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog sponsored by Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian educators unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Welcome, everybody. I'm Scott Postma, your host, and I'm joined today by Sarah Abbott and Tim Knotts uh, from the Classical Consortium or Classical Learning Consortium for New England. And we're going to talk with them a little bit today. Uh, we have a conference coming up uh, this summer together. And Sarah has been a teacher, um, a teacher trainer, curriculum writer, a coach, and an educational administrator for people of all ages for over 25 years now. And she's a native of Massachusetts and serves as the co-founder of the Classical Learning Consortium for New England. And Tim uh, joins her as a co-founder also and a reader of books and an apprentice to a master teacher, an amateur poet, and a lover of the beautiful. And he uh, is in New England with his wife, Cynthia, and they have four children and they live in Connecticut. So welcome, Sarah and Tim. Glad to have you on the Consortium Podcast today. Scott, nice to be here. Thanks. Good to see you. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, for joining me uh, today. And and as we mentioned, we'll just um, have a, a casual conversation today. And, and one of the things that we really want to talk about is what you are doing uh, in New England. And before we get to that, want to learn a little bit about you guys and what brought you into classical education? This isn't something that um, the whole world is aware of, although at one point it used to be uh, the norm for the way that people educated. And so there you are in New England. What brought you guys into classical education? How did you get started and why is this important to you? And Tim, maybe you'd like to lead out. Sure. Thanks, Scott. Uh, so I actually received something of a classical education as a law student. Uh, the em emphasis there pedagogically is, is on Socratic education. Uh, you know, we as law students go, go out, read the cases, read the, the statutes, and then come back and are asked questions about them and then discuss them as a class. So very Socratic in some ways and not, not necessarily fully, but, but modeled after that. Uh, and, and before that I had received some teacher training uh, in, in undergraduate school, I had been on the track to become a classroom teacher. And my classroom teaching experience there was very disappointing. Hmm. And it wasn't really until I saw a, a classical education uh, classroom at work when my daughter was four years, five years old, that we, uh, we, we really had this sort of epiphany and my wife uh, to a lesser degree and me to a greater degree that Oh, this is this is different, and this is exactly what I want. This this is the best parts of my education, all reflected in a way that was uh, new and fresh to me, even though it it was recognizable as the parts of my own education that were the most effective. So since then, I've been reading, learning, growing, uh, pursuing growth in the area of classical education uh, in as many different ways as I can get it. Fantastic. But just before we hear from, from Sarah, um, you mentioned Socratic uh, discussion. So in law school, my, my original thought would be thinking in, in terms of rhetoric, you know, um, you know, if you're studying law and, and you're going to be arguing cases, maybe rhetoric would be an important aspect. And, and maybe there's just, maybe it's too nuanced uh, difference between uh, rhetorical education and Socratic, but would you mind maybe unpacking that a little bit for our audience? And what do you mean by Socratic discussion? Yeah, so there's certainly a rhetorical element to law school. There's a writing piece, uh, how, to, how to draft a compelling argument. That's the rhetorical piece. And that's really important and a significant part of the law school education. But before you can talk about the law and convince anyone about its meaning, you have to understand it yourself. And that's really where the Socratic element comes in. Uh, the law is filled with uh, statutes the rules and then cases where those rules are interpreted and applied to specific facts. Uh, when you read the cases, uh, they're helpful for formulating an idea of what 
what the laws mean, but they're never exactly your own facts in the cases that you're handling as an attorney. So you gather a grouping of cases that all sort of circle around the kinds of facts that you're dealing with and you synthesize them, you, you read them, you digest them, you pull out what's important, what's necessary and essential and, and discard what isn't. Um, so even in that, there's a bit of a mimetic element as well. But the Socratic piece is coming together and you put forth propositions and the professor or your classmates challenge you to defend what you believe the cases mean or how they're leading you to conclusions. So you're, you're literally having to think through, you know, these different cases, how they're similar, how they're alike, how you can use it for your own case. Well, that's fascinating. And I'm wondering, you know, so you said one of the things that, you know, with your wife and I, your wife and you, as you watched your daughter at, you said four or five, um, that there were some similarities to your own education. So certainly she's not doing um, <laughs> law school, right? At four or five. What were those similarities? What, what were similar about that that you wanted her to get? Yeah, so it actually was not going to see her class at that age, but going to visit the, um, the about 13-year-olds at that time. Uh, I'd been invited to go and help them understand a little bit about court proceedings as they were preparing for a mock trial. Um, uh-huh. So I came and talked to them about being an attorney, and I asked if I could stick around for a little while afterward and see what else they did. Uh, in their in their time as a class and and watching them interact in in a similar though of course diminished way where they had gone home and read books and came together to talk about them rather than being told by the teacher here's what the book says here's what the mm. book means they were being asked to digest that and talk about it together so they're really exercising that thinking muscle working through these these cases together as as young people that's that is so fascinating um sarah how did you get into classical education well i was teaching in a classical um, excuse me in a christian school uh in philadelphia at the time i had just graduated uh from my undergraduate in elementary education and um i was working alongside this this one teacher and he was a quirky little dude and he would walk around with these books and kind of ranting about things. Um, to me, it was mumbo jumbo sounded a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher. I didn't really pay him any mind. I was a new teacher. I was just trying to figure out, you know, what I was supposed to be doing. Um, we did have one thing in common though. And that was that we both believed that, students were capable of learning a lot more than um, what was given to us in a canned curriculum. Mm. And um, I just felt that it didn't really matter where a student came from. They were just all capable. They just, God had designed them to all be capable of that. Um, So, you know, that was kind of, that was a first introduction, but I didn't really understand what I was hearing about. Um, Later, when I moved home to Massachusetts um, and I had my son, everything changed because, you know, when you have your own children, you want the best education possible for them. And um, my, uh, my college roommate, actually, her husband had started a classical school uh, down in Virginia. And I was talking to them a little bit, but really not about education, more about, you know, survival as a new mom. Um, and and then I decided to, um, pursue my master's, uh, here in Massachusetts. And, um, my son was going to daycare with my friend and, um, she was, uh, reading a book, uh, the well-trained mind. And she was actually trying to teach her little, her little girl, uh, who was a couple years older than my son, um, classically. And again, I, I didn't really know, you know, much about it at all. And I just thought, okay, well, whatever you're doing with her, can you just do it with mine too? <laughs> My kid, you'll just, you know, we're just trying to check off all the boxes here. Um, but then as I was going through uh, getting my master's and studying more, I, I found out there was actually a classical school really close to me uh, here in Massachusetts. And I went to visit it and um, they had some Latin on the board. And I could understand it because I had learned Spanish mm. and I thought that I was probably a genius at that moment. I was like, Oh my word, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
because again, not understanding anything about how languages work, you know, nothing like that. Um, and then, and then I really became curious. So the pieces started to connect and I'm like, okay, what, what is this? I think I want to know more about it. Um, and so then, uh, I, I actually talked with my friends, uh, down South in Virginia and, um, started to do a lot more research. Uh, my professors would even let me do independent studies on classical education, even though they weren't really supportive of it themselves. Um, and I ended up actually doing research for my friend's husband um, on the classical school that he was starting. And that was really when I started looking closely at texts and understanding more. But even now, looking back, I still didn't know what I was talking about. You know, um, so anyway, I ended up writing the curriculum for this classical school to have a pre-K. And I presented it to the headmaster and he said, it looks great, but we don't have a teacher. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I could do it. <laughs> so um, that was how I got into the classical school. And uh, I was only there two years before uh, the economy killed the school. Mm. And um, it was really very, it was a very sad thing because um, it was this close knit group of people uh, that had rich relationships, loved one another, supportive of one another, um, and just loved learning together. And so I was really saddened um, by the loss of the school. And there, there isn't anything else near me. No, there were, you know, no, no other options for classical education. Um, and, you know, having an education background, I still thought that the only way somebody should educate is through the school, you know, didn't really understand that there could be another option of homeschooling. Um, and uh, a friend of mine who is a single mom of six challenged me to homeschool because as I'm a single mom, I thought there's no way I could, there's no way I could homeschool. Like that's like, it's literally impossible. Um, but then uh, connecting some dots again through my, my friend who was doing childcare for my son I learned about classical conversations and was able to start one here in Massachusetts. Um, I, I literally took the catalog and gave it to every teacher at the school I worked with and said, please check this out and make sure they're not crazy. Um, is this, is this legitimate? Like, is this still classical? Will this work? You know? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they all thought it, they all thought it looked really good. Uh, so, so God provided for me to be able to homeschool my son classically through classical conversations. Um, I was able to work for them. So that was kind of my introduction to, to classical education. Um, but I really think my focus was about my son's education. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I can't tell you when it became about my own, Pro probably not until he was in high school and I began to see the richness of what we were doing and the, and the line, like everything began to connect for me. So, um, I think, I think that was my introduction. Well, that, you know, when, when you say, you know, your, your son's in high school and, and you're, you know, engaging in some of these texts, these different things, this is usually when I see a lot of parents who are like, wait a minute, I didn't get this education or I want, how do I get this education? That's always one of those, those questions that, that people want to answer. But I do have a really deep question for you that I want to see if you can, you can connect the dots for them. I put you on the spot here. Um, I want to know more about the quirky guy that carried books around <laughs> and, 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 and how you connected him back to classical education. Cause that sounds like, you know, I, I, there's a, a sort of connection there. I love carrying books around and being quirky, but. <laughs> Scott, you are nothing like this man. Um, <laughs> just say, I, um, I don't even know. I, I'm sure it was later when I, you know, when I was really beginning to research and understand classical education, that he came back into my mind. And I realized that he wasn't a fruitcake, that he actually, he was actually very intelligent, well-read and knew what he was talking about, but he just didn't know how to communicate it well. Uh, you know? yeah. And, uh, but he would, he would just carry around books and hunched shoulders, you know, little guy, <laughs> just kind of rant about books. 
so oh, that's- I, I really, I really didn't think I'd be thinking or talking about him ever again, but um, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. I, I, I love to hear people's stories. I love to hear how you got involved in classical education. I, I For for me, it was a, a, an entirely different kind of journey, and it was uh, it's a fascinating journey. And, and I've always found that people have these very similar, you know, epiphany moments themselves when they realize what classical education is. And so I'm, I'm wondering, I, there's a variety of ways that classical education can be described. I, I think they all fit with under, you know, under an umbrella of, you know, a, a similar understandings and and i think throughout the ages there's been some nuances as we've you know as when you look historically how classical education sort of um you know grew up in different uh, at different time periods that looked a little bit different so so there's some kind of sub nuances to it but overarching it's it's pretty similar so i'm wondering if each of you would give our listeners a, a brief you know it could be an elevator pitch or however you would like to describe it but what is classical christian education and so maybe sarah you could start us off and then we'll go to tim but but how would you describe or how would you explain to our audience what is classical education Yes, uh, you know, and it's funny because the more the more I read, I think the more complicated my definition gets. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm just going I'm going to say what I think it is as if I were talking to myself ten years ago. Yeah, uh, fifteen years ago. Um, I think it is the richest and most intuitive way that we were made to learn, and I think that um, we learn so that we can understand what is true and good and beautiful. Now, practically speaking, right? Cause that, that didn't say much to people who are listening and thinking, I have no idea what she's talking about. But um, I think practically speaking, we utilize, we utilize tools that help, that help us and help our students to slow down and to, to really see, um, see what we're reading or what we're studying and to seek to understand it in connection with the rest of the world. Um, and so, so, you know, there, there's a lot more to it than that, but I think that that is really what we're doing. Um, and the overall goal is that you're raising a child who can think for themselves, who can be um, can can wait on others, listen well, and process what they're hearing in order to be hospitable to the other person, um, understand where they're coming from, and point them to point them to God, point them to what is true, capital T, what is good and beautiful. Um, so so that's kind of an overarching response, but, but I think that's what I would say to myself. And then I'm sure myself would have had a lot of questions about that. So it's fascinating. Matter of fact, that there's a few things I want to jump in and, and ask you to, to clarify, because I think it'd be good, but, but I want to hear from Tim before I uh, take us down a rabbit trail and see what, how Tim, Tim may even speak to some of those things. But one of the things that really stands out in your definition is that there's an assumption that there is an ideal image, some sort of norm, some sort of objective truth. When you talk about truth, you know, goodness and beauty. And that's very interesting given the culture and the way education is going our culture today. So right there, starkly, that seems like education's going in a different direction. But Tim, what would you say? How would you answer that question? What is classical Christian education? Um, well, I'll try and likewise put it in a nutshell, though it's a very, very big topic. Uh, I would say that in its shortest version, it's the pursuit of virtue mm. um, and virtue classically defined as excellence at something. So a virtuoso violinist has the virtue of violin playing. Uh, So the virtue, big V virtue that we're trying to cultivate in our students is really excellent at living or, or excellence at being the most human that they can be. And, uh, and, and for us as Christians, that, human is defined for us. It's not an ambiguous thing, but we have 
specific descriptions of what it means to be human in God's word and a living example in Christ. So, mm. so a classical Christian education is really pointing our students and ourselves at, at Christ likeness and growing in it ourselves. And it requires wisdom in knowing how to live in this world, this fallen world, but to pursue that perfect image that you were just talking about, Scott. That, again, it's so fascinating to me because the world, and when when and and I'm when I use this term world, I guess I'm coming back from, uh, in my own experience, you know, 25 years plus of of being in education, the um, the public schools, and and I'm not wanting you know in any way to diminish good teachers who you know really care and, and really care about education but the system seems to uh because it it, it has a, a secular underpinning really focuses on the is of of education right and what you guys both seem to be talking about is that there is an ought and it it sort of reminds me a little bit in one of the chapters of uh, David Hicks norms and nobility where he talks about a democratic society needs an aristocratic kind of education and that that sounds like what you're talking about in that uh, in that sense uh, is is that accurate or was there anything that either of you would add to that Don't everybody I'm, go at once. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you sort of treading on semi-hallowed ground when you start talking about norms and nobility. I think we're all a little afraid to, to walk there. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's an excellent observation. Um, and I, I think that Hicks is certainly not the only one who would say that. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about what a good education doesn't look like very frequently in his writings. Yeah. Um, and it's usually all the things that are associated with modern education, poor experience that he had with education at boarding schools in the waning days of classical education, uh, where all the structures of classical education were still in place, but none of the heart remained. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so he, he learned a lot by rote and he studied Latin, but uh, but none of those things were done to aim him toward virtue. They were just done because somehow they were like generically good for him as a young man. And they, they were supposed to shape his character, whatever that means. Um, that, and I think that was his real grudge against the kind of education he got and, and, and a rightfully so. So, so yes, I, I agree that with, with you and Hicks that, we need a an education that raises up a class of people who thinks clearly and rightly about things. And beyond thinking about them clearly and rightly, as Plato would point out, uh, right knowledge is right action. So mm. learning to think clearly and then be committed to the things that are thought so that we act properly in society and as a ruling citizen class. Well, again, so I want to come back to this and, and what I hear you guys, the, the drum that sounds like it's, it's being beaten is that there is some sort of collective good that a society needs to have or the human beings need to have. And, and that seems to fly in the face of much of our individualism uh, and sort of this autonomy that our, our modern culture wants. Would you say that, um, that this is a, a is the modern culture and what we're seeing in this a result of a lack of a classical education, or is it um, is it the result of something else and classical education died because of the something else that that came in, um, and then a follow up question. I hope this doesn't get too complicated, but a follow up question is when did the switch happen? You're talking about C.S. Lewis. You know that's you know at, at a period of, of time in in history, early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, so when would you say that this shift took place? When whichever one it is. It was, I would say from my perspective, it was a, a long, slow creeping death, <laughs> not, not okay. suddenly that suddenly turned. Um, I know many people would point back to uh, Francis Bacon or uh, Occam or Descartes and 
and say it was nominalism, the rise of nominalism that really began the end mm. of, of it. Uh, you might be able to go back farther. I'm in the middle of reading Owen Barfield's book, Saving the Appearances, and he talks about uh, the Copernican revolution having really very little to do with his astronomical assumptions or, or views, but instead to do with his view of science and uh. that science is the arbiter of truth rather than that science only points us to a truth that exists apart from science. Um, and so maybe you can go back as far as Copernicus and Galileo. Um, okay. But, uh, but it, certainly all these things have borne their fruit and the rise of materialism uh, is really sort of the, maybe the final end of that, you know, post modernism, uh, you know, the, the full flowering of, of pilots question, what is truth? Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe is the, the real heart of it. And that goes back to the garden. Yeah. So this, this is a, this is an age old man problem. It sounds like, but I, yeah, I appreciate that answer, Sarah. So with, uh, with your, um, your and Tim's uh, work that you're doing with the, the classical learning consortium for new England. And we were talking before and, and you, you made a, um, a really important uh, emphasis on four. Um, and, and I'd like for you maybe to talk about that, but so why, uh, and, and then we'll hear from Tim also, but, but why does new England need this thing called classical education that we're talking about? And how is the classical learning consortium for new England going to meet that need or what is its mission? Sure. Well, um, there's a lot of reasons why New England needs it. Um, I mean, I think everywhere needs it, right? I, I just think that this is where we live. Um, and this is a place where, um, like I, I said earlier, uh, there's not a classical school within an hour of where I live. Um, there's not even a Christian school within an hour of where I live. Um, so we are often isolated. Um, we are, we live in a place that is spiritually anemic. Um, we tend to be very independent and try to fix, do things on our own. Um, And one of the most beautiful parts of classical education that I love is the hospitality piece. Mm. I learned the most about the hospitality piece in reading the Odyssey. Um, at the same time, I was actually reading Rosaria Butterfield's book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and I, her whole emphasis was on hospitality. So reading that at the same time as reading the Odyssey, I could see the connection, and I could see that um, if, if we want New Englanders to know what classical education is, if we want to bring together people who are trying to do it, are trying to learn, are just very, you know, just at the beginning stages or just, you know, just sitting there reading books and not knowing what to do with them, then we have to bring them together so that we can learn together. Um, So New England needs it for those reasons, because we are isolated, because, you know, like I said, spiritually anemic. Um, This is one of the places where education has always been um, at the forefront and not so much anymore. Mm. Um, We have, we have people canceling books. Um, There's, there's just so many things going on. Um, And then we have people that are, that are trying to maybe take their kids out of the public schools, but don't know what to do with them. So they're floundering. Um, and again, I, I'm not saying that New England is unique from every other part of the country or the world, but this is again where we live and, and we are passionate about this area. More and more people are leaving New England because of, the, of these things that I just laid out. Um, and, and we want to help while we're here. We want to be here and help um, bring people together. Uh, so that, that's actually why we have the word for in the title. Mm. Um, because we want to, we want to be hospitable to new Englanders, um, learn together, 
bring people together um, and yeah, and help them, help them to, to clap, educate classically. Um, we have had so many people talk to us lately that they're trying to start classical schools or trying to, you know, just asking questions like, what do we do? How do we do this? Or we have classical schools that are just in need of strengthening and encouraging, uh, equipping, right? And so we are, we are in a position, Tim and I, um, that we can do that and we want to do that. That's fascinating. So what I'm hearing you say is everywhere needs classical education and you are uh, offering hospitality in the form of, of, of forming classical education or, or getting it to flourish where you live. Tim, what, what would you add to that uh, explanation and the, the mission of uh, the Classical Learning Consortium for New England? So I think uh, uh, reading Wendell Berry was actually quite formative for me in that uh, prior to, to having read several Wendell Berry novels and essays, I was pretty convinced that I was ready to move away <laughs> from here as well, to follow the many others who have exodused this area, um, to go to some place where I can have good conversations about deep things, where I can say, but Plato says and not have the sort of glaze fall over the person's <laughs> eyes immediately maybe 15 minutes later <laughs> but not right away um and reading Wendell Berry and his conversation about place mm. that that place has an importance in who we are and as I raise my children and I set an example for them and I show them what it means to live in this world. Uh, I can't be off chasing after that idyllic vision, hoping to find it in Moscow, Idaho, or North Carolina, or Texas, or wherever it is that I have in my head that there's this lovely, flourishing, intellectually alive Christian place to be uh, because I know that when I go there, I won't find that mm -hmm. not the way that I envision it in my head, right? It's not an ideal in any place. Uh, that's anything that's being, per it's just only being pursued in those places. It's not found yet. Yes. And so, so I think Wendell Berry really Im impressed upon me the fact that I need to pursue that where I am uh, to, to make my place my own instead of, seeking after other people's places and trying to make them my own. I, I love that. Can you remind me, I believe the title of the Wendell Berry book you're probably referring to, is it called a place on earth? Am I getting that correct? Yeah. He, he talks about it in several places. Okay. And to me, if you don't know Wendell Berry, um, you know, read some of his Port Williams stories, um, Jaber Crow, Hannah Coulter. Um, the, he incarnates those ideas. So, beautifully and poignantly. Uh, those are a great way to start. Absolutely. That is fantastic. So let's, um, as we, as we sort of begin our wind down, we, we've got a few things we want to talk about, but I'm wondering what would you say to an educator um, who, you know, maybe they're in a modern education system that they feel like, you know, I, I know these kids can do more. I think Sarah was talking about that early on that, that, you know, the, what we're expecting, um, and, and I found this personally to be true too, wherever I raise the bar, 99% um, of my students always rise to the occasion and they always get a richer education wherever we raise the bar. And then I'm not talking about a, a perfectionist sort of thing, um, but, but certainly we can raise the bar there. So what would you say to an educator who's wanting um, to, to give this kind of education, to be involved in the kind of community you just talked about, how do they, how do they get there? What should they do? What should be their next step? Who should they talk to? <laughs> he's, he's pointing at me, <laughs> uh, Sarah, uh, who should they talk to as in yeah. consortium or, 
Well, I, I just mean, and gener- generally speaking, maybe I, sh- I should have given that question a little bit, uh, a little bit better. Uh, just generally speaking, because I run into educators all the time who ask the question, what do I do? I, you know, this kind of education, they want to get out of education. Um, and frankly, I, I went uh, to pursue my doctorate because I had intended to go to the university and, and teach at the university. And I don't know if that will ever be the case, just because given the way that the university has gone, it, it's just, it's not a place where I would want to be. And, and uh, I think I can give my, my efforts in a, a better place. But what about somebody who's in there and wants to get out, wants to do something? Should they stay where they're at and try to reform it? Are there people to talk to? Do they, what do they do for their own sake? Well, I think for their own sake, they should start um, reading, reading books and listening to podcasts. Mm. So uh, if, if somebody is brand new to classical education, I wouldn't say to read a book. I would say, listen to some podcasts and just start listening to people talk. Um, So, you know, this one, Andrew Kern, you know, just listening to people talk about classical education and uh, begin to saturate yourself with it. Then, right, then as you move along, begin to pick up books and, and read the books. Um, so uh, the liberal arts tradition was, was one that I read several years ago, mm. and it was very helpful for me. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend starting off with norms and nobility. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just know that if you do, you want to read that 10 or 12 times and then <laughs> you might be okay. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's just a deep dive, you know? And so I don't think it's the place that, that a, a person who's brand new wants to start. Um, I, I do think that you have to, as an educator, you have to begin to reshape your thinking about your students. So education is not plugging holes. Mm. So we oftentimes, cause I, I did it myself when I was, uh, in, in, edu- in education, um, in the Christian school I was in, I was just thinking about getting through the day. I had a scope and sequence for the year, right? I had this, this curriculum or this text, whatever it was that I, I had to teach. I had to get through it. Right. And that's very different than classical education. So the tricky balance is that an educator has to follow the guidelines of the school and is under the, the, the administrator. Um, so I think a place that they could start besides their own education would be learning how to ask good questions, mm. right? Learning, learning how to engage a student. Um, so slowing down, looking at them, right? Seeing who they are, who God made them to be. Asking good questions is a really great place to start. And then as they're doing, the teachers doing their own research, talking to administration and just saying, you know, I, I would like to, I would like us to explore this together. Would you be open to that? Right. Because going into a public school or, or just trying to, you know, fight the power, right. It's, it's not going to work. You're just going to infuriate yourself. You're going to upset the kids in your class and not be hospitable to them. Um, and so I don't think that that's the way to do it. Um, I think instead it's, it's learning for yourself, having conversations with administration, and then um, thinking about outcomes is the other thing. So we, don't, we shouldn't design our curriculum for the year. We should be thinking about what, do, what is our end goal. When they graduate, when they are sent off into the world as adults, what, what do I want them to have? What virtues should they, should they have the qualities that they can take with them and so that they can continue learning as adults? How, how have I equipped them to do that? Okay, that's fantastic. So when you say not for the year, you're talking about for life or or for at least the time that they're in school, you're you're talking long range kinds of goals. And that's really helpful. And I one one of the themes that I keep hearing come up and I, I really appreciate this is the hospitality theme, right? Even even if you're an educator, you're saying in a situation where you answer to somebody else, there's a hospitable 
you know, disposition that, that, um, you know, to approach that. Tim, do you have anything that, that you would add to that, or maybe you would want to even um, speak to parents and children, you know, what, where, uh, or, or parents with young children, you know, like where would they go? Um, and, and maybe even have something to add about the educator as well. Yeah. And just kind of want to add a little bit to what Sarah was saying. She did a great job with that. Um, remembering that our students are, are people, they're humans, they're image bearers, and we're raising them up not to be students, but to be, but to be the fullest, best version of themselves as an adult. And so, so prioritizing is really important in that, you know, we want to expose them to a lot of things, but the last thing we want to do as, as teachers or parents is to crush their spirit of wonder and inquiry. Um, we want them to love reading and, and learning and to be curious about things and to be equipped with the skills to go out and satisfy their curiosity. So I think if we're doing that on the academic front, then we've really done our job. The, the box checking of did we cover enough chemistry or did we get them all the way through calculus? Uh, those things need to be let go uh, and, and focus on the things that are the most important, um, which are making, helping that child to grow into that uh, fullest expression of their own humanity. When you said let that curriculum go or let, you know, those questions go, like, do we get through that? I just heard every educator's ears perk up when you said that. <laughs> uh, and that's, yeah. I think, such an important emphasis that you're making here in, in terms of, of reorienting. So please continue. I just wanted to throw that thought in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we tend to fall into the trap of accepting the status quo with with minor modifications, right? We, we maybe want to take a different route to get to the same ends that the contemporary educator does. And, and I think we're setting ourselves up to fail when we do that. We need to instead evaluate what's, what's our end, what's, what's our final cause to steal from Aristotle. And, and if we understand what that is, what's our, what's our telos, what's our end, what's our goal, um, what's the maturity of the student look like? Then we can lay out the course that we get from where we are to there. And in the classical world, that that course is really circles around the trivium and the quadrivium. Uh, and, and all the other things will come, mm. right? All the other things can be added on later, can be pursued, but that solid, solid base in in reading and writing and logic and communication. And uh, I, I would much rather have my child graduate my school with an excellent understanding of arithmetic and geometry than a cursory uh, fly overview of mathematics up through calculus mm -hmm. and not have any real understanding of them. So, like Sarah said earlier, being able to slow down, being able to to linger on the things that are important that that help them to apprehend reality. That's what we want for our students. You know, I, I feel like you've already answered this question, but I want to pitch it to you um, any in any way. I, I want to pitch it to you because I think, you know, just kind of summarize something you said made me think of something. First of all, just listening to you guys, I just want to tell you, I, I want to go back and get a classical education again. <laughs> I just, and I, I, I love hearing this and, and it's, it's so encouraging, but what do you say to that family member, you know, you know, who's asking the question, what are you going to do with a liberal arts education? How are you going to get a job? I mean, it's the question that keeps coming up. And what I keep hearing is being said is this is an education, human qua human. This is not not an education for job training. Um, why is this important um, when they need to have a job? And, and, and I'm wondering how you might answer that. I'd say uh, anyone can get a job. <laughs> I mean, that's not, you don't need 12 years of 
education to get a job or, or 16 years of education or 20 years of education to, to go out and get a job. You may for some specific jobs, there may, you know, there's certainly vocations that require more, but you don't need that for a job, but you do need it to be a good human, mm. you, right? We need to grow out of infancy and, and childhood in our thinking to be able to go out and live. And if you have this kind of an education, really a fully or a full orbed classical education, it, you know, it's not, not to in any way besmirch Jesus Christ um, <laughs> and his words, but you know, if you seek this thing first and all the other things will be added to you, um, it's sort of true here. If yeah. you have this full liberal arts education, uh, then you can go out and learn to code. Then you can go out and, uh, and do biochemistry. You can go out and do genetics. You can go be an astronaut. If that's what you want to do, you have the tools to pursue those things. You don't need to be hyper-specialized as a STEM student or a fine arts student or a, uh, you know, a, a computer science student by the age of 18. <laughs> you need to learn how to be a person by the time you're 18 and, and maybe only be just on your opening steps of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I love that. Um, I I think, uh, maybe it was C.S. Lewis who talked about, you know, somebody who has, you know, um, you know, intellectual prowess without the virtue and the character, you just make more clever devils. And, and so, you know, you can have somebody who has a good job in terms of, you know, they know how to do a skill, but if they don't have the, um, human skills, you know, then they're, you know, they're not going to be the kind of person that you want to work for you or you, you're going to want to be working in a, in a particular place. I appreciate that answer. Sarah, what would you say to, to parents um, who have older children that um, they realize now, maybe their children are high school, maybe they're just going to college and they, they are in a situation where they recognize now what seems to be like it might be too late to give them a classical education. How, how would you counsel, how would you encourage someone um, if they were in that situation? Well, I was still really thinking about the other thing uh, about with the schools and so Sorry, Scott. Oh, no worries. That's great. I, I have pondered that question myself many times. What would you say, Tim? I think it's never too late. Yeah. No, I think in this day and age, in America anyway, the majority of us who are either classically educating or being classically educated are coming to it late. Yeah. There's very few of us that are starting at four or six or eight years old with a classical liberal arts education, many of us are later in life starting to do the things that we should have done or should have had done for us when we were young. Um, so it's, it's not too late to turn the ship. It's not going to be easy mm-hmm. and it will take time and there'll be as much unlearning of things as there will be learning for quite a while. Yeah, that sounds like a, a like a big project, but I, I agree with you. It's a it's a it's a slow turn of the ship. It's a um, but you know I I think one of the things about classical education that's been for me anyway, and and you guys tell me if it's if it's different for you, but you know you said we're we're being classically or we're classically educating right we're we're still in the process of it and i remember i i i wasn't introduced to a classical education until i was getting my master's degree and uh, i'd already had a master's in theology and then i went to i it's a long story i went to try to get an mfa and i just my writing wasn't good enough to get into the program and somebody said hey there's a um, a great school who has a uh you read like Aristotle and Plato and stuff like all the classics and you learn theology. And so I'm like, Oh, that sounds interesting. And so I looked into it and boy, it just opened the whole world to me, you know, in classical education. And as I was going through there, you know, I, I became the sophomore, right. You know, you, <laughs> that, that wise fool where you feel like, man, I've just learned so much. Doesn't everybody know this? Um, you know, and then you realize this is like such the tip of the iceberg. This is just basically getting your toe wet. Um, and this is going to be a lifelong endeavor. So it is for all of us anyway. And, and I think you're right. I think that, you know, it might be a long time coming, but it can be a, a, a beautiful journey uh, in, in terms of, of continuing to be educated. I, I do have an answer. Tim is right that um, 
you know, we all came to it late, right? We, we weren't, most of us were not educated classically. Um, we are in a position now where we are giving that to our, to our children. And, um, and it's wonderful, right? But, but even looking back on my son's education, even though he was in classical conversations, I was still approaching education from my, my perspective, my techniques and strategies at home. It took a long time for me to let go of what I thought I knew in order to begin to utilize the simplicity of classical mm. education, right? So it's going back to what, what Tim was saying, the slowing down, because I was thinking with that other question about the teachers, there's a lot of layers, right, in, in that question. Um, but it's not as simple as just slow down and, you know, um, it's okay if you don't finish the math book. Well, it might not be okay by the administration, right? It, it might not be okay by the school district. And so there are these teachers who are caught in the middle. But um, anyway, that's a rabbit trail. Uh, I do think the way you do it with your students that are older mm-hmm. um, who have graduated or graduating is you stop telling them what to do and you ask them questions. You just ask them questions. You know, if they say, oh, I think I want to go to this college. Oh, really? Tell me why. Tell me, tell me why. What, what are the benefits of going there? What are the benefits of not? I don't think I want to go to college. Okay, let's talk about that. Can you, can you tell me more about what you're thinking and why? So you're modeling, mm. asking questions, and the more you do that, the more they begin to mimic that. Um, they begin to embrace it as well. The other thing I think you model is the whole spirit of inquiry yourself. Yeah. Right. So, so as you are learning, you share that and you just say, oh my word, isn't this amazing? You know, I, we just dissected cow's eyes in class the other day <laughs> and <laughs> we had a vet pathologist with us and the choroid coat of a cow's eye looks like a mother pearl or it looks like the galaxies. You know, it's, it's beautiful. These different shades of blue and green and, and it's just magnificent. And we could hold that up. And I said to my class, why would God do that? Mm, yeah. No one sees this except somebody who's dissecting a cow's eyeball. Isn't right? that? What is, it's amazing. And, and the, um, the, that pathologist said, well, it's art. Yeah. Right. And, and so it was so amazing to be able to, to model that with my students, my learning, right. My seeing, whoa, look at what our creator did right? As we're, we're looking at the different parts of the eye or the lens, you know, they are picking up the lens and they're holding it to their eyes and they're seeing if they can magnify text with it. And (laughs) so I think all of that is something that you can continue to do with, with young adults, right? You know, um, if they're, if they're, you know, college age or, or whatever, you know, you, all you need to do is buy them lunch and have a conversation (laughs) because they'll eat your free food and then you can talk to them. So. I, I love that because what, what you seem to be talking about is something I've heard before called the first learner, right? As the teacher takes on the role of becoming the, the first learner, the model learner. And, and so rather than being strictly didactic, um, and, and there's probably, you know, there's a place for didactic, you know, teaching, but the idea of this in Lankus of asking questions and then unpacking the why behind these questions really gets to the heart of, of matters. And, and so this Socratic, as, as Tim opened with, uh, is such an, an important aspect of it. Well, Tim and Sarah, this has been fantastic. I, I've really learned a lot and I, and I appreciate everything that you have shared and you've both shared, um, you know, I, Sarah, you talked about some podcasts and Tim talked about some Wendell Berry books, but is there a book that you would leave with our audience that you think would be important? And, and maybe it's, uh, you know, primarily thinking about classical education. Um, and, and you did mention also Sarah, the book, uh, uh, 
Clark and Jane, I think, uh, that wrote the the classical tradition, and that's a great book. Norms and Nobility uh, is such a a fun book. Like you said, you know, you you've got to get into it, uh, you know, several times. And we're actually on a different podcast, the Everlasting Education Podcast. We're unpacking that, and we probably spend an hour, you know, talking about it before we even get on air uh, because there's just it's so rich, and sometimes we don't always agree with you know how it's presented and unpacking things. So it's a lot of fun to talk about it in, in terms of that. So what, what would you add to those books that we've, we've mentioned, Sarah, anything that you would uh, recommend? I, I would do have a book I'd, I would recommend. Um, and it, I don't think that the author would say that it is about classical education. Um, but with my growing understanding of it, I think that it is, um, it is art and faith, a theology of making by Makoto Fujimura. Mm, um, yeah. He is an artist uh, who was fr- is from New York City, lived in New York City. Um, he was he lived right at Ground Zero uh, during 9-11. And um, so he talks about how he makes art in the book. But in doing so, he can't help but integrate it with the rest of life. And so it's not just it's not separate. It's not this isolated, let's talk about the subject of art. He says that God is a creator and we are all mini creators. And therefore we are called to create. And in doing so, um, we are, we are loving people when we do that. Um, so I, I love this book. I, he has given me both a fresh perspective on scripture um, as well as on art. Um, he has even talked about artists that he has, has uh, looked up to who I thought, whoa, I would not think, <laughs> I would not think he appreciates that art, but he's giving me a fresh vision on understanding different artists um, and in, in doing so on learning and on that spirit of inquiry, which to me is, is just an integral part of classical learning. That's fantastic. I, I'm familiar with the author. I've never read the book. And so that's going to be on my uh, to read list now. Thank you, Sarah. Tim, what would you add? I'm going to add something that is not necessarily has to be added to your to read list because I'm sure you've read it many times. Uh, Homer, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, I think are not only pivotal in their content for understanding Western culture and where we come from, but also. I mean, Sarah already mentioned it earlier, right? She learned about hospitality yeah. from the Odyssey. Um, it touches on on nearly all the major human themes of literature down through the ages. Um, it it's informed authors, teachers, uh, you know, for for three thousand some years, and uh, and in it you see Athena teaching as she goes along. All right. And so we have a model for teaching and we have a model for parenting and we have a model for being a, a child and we have a model for being a king and for being a follower of a king. Right. We have all these things uh, all sort of wrapped up in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I think reading them, uh, if you're going to just read one, one book, right. I mean, they're really, they're one thing anyway, yeah. the Iliad and the Odyssey, read, read those and, and spend the time in them. Uh, and digesting them and considering those things. Fantastic choice. And, you know, the, the, the Homeric epics, you know, really is the foundation uh, for a classical education. There's some older works of Gilgamesh and, and some things, but, but that really is the foundation for a Western education. And so Tim, that's a, that's a great, uh, recommendation as well. And, and you, you mentioned this, I just, I can't escape it, uh, as we kind of wrap up, um, the idea of hospitality in the Odyssey and, and even in, in the Iliad, we see Zania. Um, we found it fascinating in one of our class discussions that, um, you know, Jesus said that all of the law and prophets hang on two commandments to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And you see this, this, you know, Zania, this guest host relationship at its very core is honoring the gods and honoring your neighbor. And it's, so it's a very human 
uh, approach to understanding. Of course, Christianity animates and, and clarifies, obviously, but uh, but I just thought it was so fascinating that not just among the Jews and in, in the Hebraic literature, uh, but even within the pagans, you know, this is rooted in humanity. And so we, we get a, a, a peek at that splintered light Tolkien called, you know, called it. So... Well, Tim and Sarah, again, thank you so much for spending the time here and to our listeners. Um, we're going to be joining forces with the Classical Learning Consortium for New England uh, and uh, Kepler Education this summer, uh, July 15th and 16th in Summers, Connecticut. And we'll be uh, joining for a two-day um, conference, a Friday and a Saturday. And Friday uh, is a, a free event open to anyone who wants to come and learn about what is classical education. So if you live in the New England area, we would love for you to come and visit us. And if you go to uh, the classical education, or excuse me, the classical consortium.com. You will find uh, links to that. um, And uh, we'll put in the show notes here, the links to the classical learning uh, consortium for new England and for the conference. And we would love for you to come and uh, visit with us. And we would be happy to hang out and chat with you, have lunch with you. And uh, Saturday is an all day event with lots of different speakers. And so we would, we would love to have you come. Anything you would like to say about that, Sarah, Tim, before we sign off. And we're really trying to live out that hospitality in this. Uh, Kepler has been a great partner with us in it. And we're looking forward to hosting everybody for a a lovely conversation. Uh, We're not going to just talk at you, but talk with you. Ah, I love that. And I I would add, um, even if you don't know anything about classical education or, you know, just a little bit, just come, just come and ask the questions. You know, we all, we all have to begin somewhere and you shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. You shouldn't be afraid not to know everything. I definitely don't. And you just come and enjoy learning uh, with us. We would we'd love to have you. Sounds like a fun time. But once again, fine, we're going to sign off. But thank you, Sarah and Tim. And God bless you all to our uh, listeners and enjoyed having this conversation today and hope to see you again on the Consortium podcast. God bless. Mm